Hello, it's Joe Alcock again for another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. And this podcast is August 15th, 2016 edition. And the title of today's podcast is The Hollow Biont. So in this podcast, we're going to see if we can define this idea of a, a hollow biont. And I think it's something that people are struggling with. Um, as evinced by a recent paper uh, entitled Getting the Hollow Genome Concept Right. And I'm going to lay out my point of view about hollow biomes and hollow genomes and symbiosis. Uh, and we're going to do this uh, while referencing the, the previous uh, paper, um, Getting the Hollow Genome Concept Right. Uh, published this year by Kevin Theiss and colleagues, uh, notably Seth Bordenstein, um, but there's a long list of authors here. Uh, it's a great paper. The paper I'm going to spend the most time on, though, today is a paper recently published in Trends in Ecology and Evolution by Michael Shapira, and the paper is entitled Gut Microbiotas and Host Evolution, Scaling Up Symbiosis. And this, uh, this is a paper that I will recommend you to read, but I think that it encapsulates some of the ideas that I have that uh, provide a critique for the this hollow biont, or hollow genome, or uh, mutualist-centric idea of the microbiome. So first off, I've, I've mentioned a bunch of terms here. Uh, we'll, I'll have to have a glossary uh, on the blog with uh, some definitions, but... Uh, for those of you who have followed my blog or previous podcasts, I have detailed uh, what is meant by the term microbiome and microbiota, but let's go over that right now. So the microbiome is the collection of microbial genomes that make up uh, the community uh, living in our bodies. So if you were to take a gene at random from my body, so suppose a alien came down and they could insert a probe into my apparently mammalian body and take a gene at random, they might be more likely to sample a microbial gene than mine because, uh, genetically speaking, I am outnumbered by microbial genes. So my mammalian genome is outnumbered by uh, microbial genes. And these are the genes that are within microorganisms, things like bacteria and archaea, protozoan species, other microbes, helminths, that collectively make up the microbiota. So the collection of genes is the microbiome, the collection of organisms is the microbiota. And I'll often use those terms interchangeably. This is still a relatively new field there was no discussion of microbiomes or microbiotas when I was going to medical school. And that is both a shame because there's this amazing complexity that really was missed uh, when I was going through training, uh, but also exciting because there is much to learn right now. So here I am. Uh, next year will be my 20th year out from uh, my medical school training. So 
there's a great deal which we can learn right now about uh, the contribution of these microbes and their genetic contribution to my body, our bodies, our health, and disease. So this is a very exciting area uh, of research. So how about this idea of the holobiont? So a holobiont is uh, the concept that we are a composite organism. So again, the idea that if you look at what makes me me, I am both mammalian and microbial, and depending on definitions and who is uh, doing the defining, I might be more microbial than mammal. I'm at least as microbial as mammal in terms of the number of cells that inhabit my body, both in my skin and in my gut uh, and elsewhere in my body. So if you look at the unit, the unit of me as being both mammal and microbial, you could term that a holobiont. And the reason why this gets interesting is that uh, thinking about evolution and how evolution acts on uh, different levels of uh, selection, the holobiont may have something new to offer. So Richard Dawkins famously in the 70s published The Selfish Gene, positing that the gene was the proper unit of selection. And his book, which I recommend to anybody who hasn't read it, laid out a very compelling view of sort of a gene's eye view of evolution and natural selection. Prior to that, most people thought about evolution from an individual perspective. So the individual is being selected. Differential reproduction between individuals is what might define fitness. And uh, thinking about the individual as the unit of selection has been posited as the most useful way of thinking about evolution. So both those viewpoints are valid. There's a gene's eye view, and there can be an individual uh, eye view. Most of the time, just as a shorthand, evolutionary biologists can, if they can measure individual reproduction, um, it may be easier and better from a practical standpoint to think of the individual as the unit of selection. There, of course, there's also group level selection. This uh, group selectionist ideas have been proposed for things like aging, uh, the one of the early ideas in the 60s was that uh, populations might age uh, so that space is made for younger people. So the idea is that a group, so that resources are not exhausted, might perform better if older members die off. And if there were groups that underwent aging in this way, that was a uh, early evolutionary turns out wrong-headed explanation for why aging occurs. Aging does not occur to make space in a group level for younger individuals. Aging ha happens for other reasons that we'll get into uh, in a later podcast, including accumulation of mutations, uh, selection shadows, antagonistic pleiotropy, and the like. But this will not be a podcast about aging. Suffice to say that the problem with group selection ideas in general is that you have to account for the possibility of cheating. If there were a population of organisms that forewent their own reproduction, 
and died earlier than they otherwise could from a physiologic standpoint to provide some mutually beneficial or group group benefit for under, unrelated individuals in a group, then that would be a evolutionarily unstable strategy because it would be vulnerable to cheating. If a single individual had a mutation that prevented uh, the early aging and allowed a longer life and one with more reproduction, then a cheater that had a longer life would uh, persist in the population. And so you have to account for cheating and vulnerability of cheating when we come up with group-level selectionist ideas. Suffice it to say that there are group-level selection ideas out there, uh, now sort of rebranded as multi-level selection. Certainly this is complicated and should be the topic of a future podcast. But group-level selection, individual-level selection, genes-eye selection, or gene-level selection. But now we have this other unit, which is sort of the combination of hosts and all of the organisms that inhabit that host. So this has been thought of as what's known as a hollow biont, also been termed a meta-genome or meta-organism, has also been termed a superorganism, and the combination of genes that makes up the community of host and microbes is known as the hollow genome. So it's kind of a long introduction. So this hollow genome idea came about initially, I think, by people that promoted the idea of mutualism. That is, if microbial genes could help the host survive and reproduce, then those genes should be included in thinking about the unit of selection. So here we, here we have, we can think about how you know, variation in a population occurs of a human population. We can think about mutation being the driver of variation. But now genes can be picked up or lost from the microbial community, and that might be equally important. So this combination of genes might promote the host survival or death or reproduction or lack of reproduction. And so therefore, this may be a useful unit of selection, something to think about in terms of driving evolution. So, Michael Shapiro has taken this idea of host-symbiont coevolution and given some many useful examples, but has really framed it from a point of view which is heavy on, again, mutualism, thinking about uh, microbial genes as providing a benefit to the host. So let's go through this, this paper. So he, like others, like Seth Bordenstein and Kevin Theis, have argued that in this era of the microbiome, that this does change our view of evolution. So he argues, Shapira here, argues that pathogens might drive evolution with a stick in terms of their decreasing fitness, but mutualists Mutual symbionts might drive evolution by improving fitness of the host. And I will just in intervene here and say that this is almost certainly true at some level. And the, and the real question is, what is more important, parasitism or mutualism with regard to the microbiome? 
But Shapiro comes out at this with the point of view, and I'll just quote him. He says, overall, host microbiota interactions describe a mutualistic symbiosis. So from his point of view, most of our interactions with our resident microbes are good for us. And he argues that they provide diverse host functions, including development, fecundity, metabolism, immunity, even behavior, contributing to both host health and fitness with a variety of citations. And he says this is a two-way street. They're good for us. We're good for them. We give them a niche, particularly the human colon the area where most microbes are able to survive. And the, the following paragraph, this is uh, in this paper, again, titled Gut Microbiotas and Host Evolution, Scaling Up Symbiosis. He argues that host adaptation, so if we think about evolution, of course, being change over time, change in gene frequencies, and changes in fitness, a relative fitness of different individuals, accomplishing that evolution, he argues that the gut microbiome provides for better adaptation to the environment by evolving faster and having an ability to exchange both microbes and their genes and functions uh, with different hosts. So here he then cites this hollow genome model, that the genomes of both host and microbes are one unit under selection. But again, this is a, most, this is a favorable view of host and microbial genomes. And he gives a few examples here. Talks about the contributions of specific mutualists. So for one example, in terms of being important for evolution, Shapira cites microbes and resident symbionts as being important in speciation. So to the extent that different populations are evolving into different species, it's possible that the symbionts might be responsible for reproductive isolation. So that's one ecological isolation or reproductive isolation may be accomplished by different microbes. And then he gives a whole variety of other examples of how microbes may be important in providing for host adaptation. So one example is the bobtail squid light organ. Bobtail squid have a light organ which is populated by bioluminescent vibrio that basically provide a little light bulb function to uh, squid that give them uh, benefits in survival and reproduction that are not uh, well described here. But the host plays a large role in cultivating these microbes in vibrio that confer this bioluminescent phenotype that provide benefits to the bobtail squid. So that's a good example of, a, of a, uh, uh, what appears to be a mutualism. One of the examples in this paper that got much attention involved stink bugs. So again, we're kind of focusing on invertebrates here. Um, Broad-headed stink bugs take part in a mutualistic symbiosis with microbes in the Burkholder, Burkholderia genus. And they acquire their microbes from the soil. They also may uh, acquire some symbionts uh, during larval, larval development. Again, this is not vertical transmission. This is horizontal. But these microbes can confer pesticide resistance in the host. So it's well known that microbes 
can metabolize xenobiotics, things like pesticides, novel compounds that can be broken down by microbes. So the stink bugs in this instance are able to actually take advantage of the microbes that are in the soil, their metabolic machinery, and that, that gives the stink bug a survival advantage. So this is an example of environmentally acquired microbes that drive host adaptation. And the evolution that occurred here occurred first in soil microbes. And these were just acquired by the host. So this is really what Shapiro is getting at, that microbes may promote host adaptation, in this instance, stink bug adaptation to pesticides, and they do this by virtue of acquiring sort of rapidly evolving microbe that has metabolic machinery that can degrade the, the pesticide. So kind of a cool idea here. And this was something that was new to me. Uh, the work, the original work that he's citing here, done by Kikuchi and colleagues, published in 2012, a paper entitled Symbiont Medi Mediated Insecticide Resistance in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. So I'll point to that paper too. So kind of cool stuff. There's a variety of other examples in this paper. For instance, Daphnia. These are water fleas uh, that have decreased survival when they're raised in a germ-free environment. They lay fewer eggs, they reproduce less, and they have a shortened lifespan. So this is an example that supports the idea of a mutualism. So if you take out the microbe, the animal does worse, it has worse fitness, both in terms of survival and reproduction. So perhaps microbes are good for you. There's other examples that's in Drosophila, so fruit flies, suggesting that they can acquire microbes in their guts that regulate their host development and, and provide a, a, what, the, what Shapira describes as a positive contribution to fitness. So changes in metabolic rate, alterations of uh, carbohydrate uh, content um, in adulthood, in the adult Drosophila, so the fruit fly, these are mediated by microbes. So the argument here may be that this is, again, good for you. And mate choice. So depending on what microbes you have, that may impact uh, whether a mate is desire desirable from the point of view of a Drosophila, and the preference that, that have been found depend on the presence of a symbiont. So again, this may drive both speciation or mate preferences and certainly may have an effect on, on fitness. So all of this goes along with the idea of uh, this hollow genome concept, or hollow biont concept of evolution. And Shapira argues that the ability to acquire microbes from the environment and also vertical transmission from mother to offspring in animals promotes mutualism and promotes adaptation. So his point of view is certainly that microbes and microbiomes are good for us. And he argues, I think somewhat persuasively, that this hollow biont concept or hollow genome is a very useful way of thinking about evolution and certainly is a new thing. So I'm not going to argue with that. What I am going to argue with, though, is the relentless emphasis on mutualism because I think that really misses the boat. And so this is, this is what motivates me actually to think about microbiome and why I think this whole field is so important. And while no doubt mutualism can occur, and no doubt 
evidence of mutually beneficial impacts on host phenotype and microbial uh, fitness. So fitness enhancing association, these kinds of things occur. So the example of the Burkholderia stink bug association, um, examples in Drosophila, uh, these are pretty compelling examples. And I think that in humans, we can look at the milk fed microbiomes of babies and populations of bifidobacteria that enhance bifidobacteria fitness. They're able to reproduce in the guts of babies and they provide benefits to host in terms of offspring survival. So babies live better. So mutualism occurs in humans. But let me give you a bit of a counterpoint here. Microbes are not always good. They can compete with you for the food that you eat. They can actually eat your lunch. They can compete with you for habitat in and on your body that might be better taken up with other microbes. And they can compete with you over the nutrients in your own cells in the setting of infection when microbes lice your cells to get the nutrients held within. So this is borrows from a paper that we published uh, in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, which I will reference in the paper. But what we argue in that paper is that microbes are often like a bad relationship. They consume you, they eat your lunch, and they can invade your personal space. Microbes, in other words, can be bad. They're not always good. And to the extent that health is promoted by interactions, that has to do with the overall alignment of fitness interests of microbes and, and hosts, in this case humans, because we're interested in us, uh, us people. So when microbes are aligned with host fitness, that tends to promote mutualism and that may result in benefits. But there's a whole spectrum of possible interactions. And parasitism is an equally likely interaction. And that may result in bad outcomes. So, while Shapira provides a lot of evidence for cooperation, and this is exciting, fascinating, necessary for the complete story of human microbial associations, the mutualist interactions may be missing a lot. And to the extent that microbiomes can contribute to disease, and we know that they can, diabetes, inflammatory bowel diseases, autoimmune diseases, these are examples in which the fitness interests of the resident microbes are not aligned with ours. Therefore, the hollow biont idea, when it emphasizes just cooperation and mutualism, is again missing part of the picture, and maybe the most important picture, because it fails to explain diseases. So I'll get back to, now I mentioned this other paper, getting the hollow genome concept right by Theis and colleagues. And I'm just going to quote this because I think that they actually do get it right. I'm just going to quote a passage. In the hollow genome concept, some of us stated that the evolution of animals and plants was driven primarily by natural selection for cooperation between and with microorganisms. So this was work published by Rosenberg and Zilber Rosenberg. And I'll continue here. While in other venues, the concept places as much emphasis on cooperation as on competition. They argue, I'll just continue here, this latter statement is more precisely aligned with the pluralistic nature of the holobiont, namely that natural selection on holobiont phenotypes can work to remove nuclear mutations of 
or microbes while spreading advantageous mutations or microbes. So that they're quoting or citing Bordenstein and Theis uh, 2015, a paper that I will also put into the notes here. And I'll go on with their quotation. In fact, some of, us, some of us argued that conflicts of interest resulting from the nature of transmission of microbes to the next host could select for microbes that can manipulate the biology of the host to improve their own transmission. So they argue kind of what I think, which is that if you're arguing just from a cooperation standpoint, that's not enough. We do expect that host commensal relationships should sometimes tend to produce bad outcomes in terms of the host, host biology. So parasitism is a frequent finding in biology. We shouldn't always expect cooperation is the bottom line. And I have, to the extent that my work is focused on the microbiome, I've been motivated by this idea. Because I really think that the conflict and, and where cooperation breaks down is the more interesting area of this biology. So while it's undoubtedly true that mutualism occurs and that benefits to host fitness can be achieved by different microbes, the things that I want to intervene in and taking care of sick people, that may rely just as much on looking where these relationships break down. So again, from my perspective, that's where the money is. That's where, where some of the most interesting questions are. In the paper that I wrote with Chris Kazawa and Melissa Franklin on nutrient signaling, trying to explain why certain diets are bad for us, and particularly fats, now we argued that some fats are, they trigger on their own a inflammatory reaction on the host. This is apart from any interaction with microbes. But we argue that those, those responses evolved. So we can't, we can't explain why our bodies respond to certain fats without understanding that they were driven by negative selection from those very nutrients on microbes. So in other words, if a food feeds a pathogen and that has a negative fitness effect on, on us, that's going to select for those foods having an early warning system that will drive increased inflammation and will appear to be bad for us, but may actually have some occult or difficult to reveal benefits in terms of our ability to cope with uh, microbes in our bodies. We wouldn't be able to understand why saturated fats are worse for us, or they're apparently worse for us in terms of driving inflammation than monounsaturated fats and omega-3 fatty acids without understanding that they can drive negative, harmful changes in the microbiome that are more parasitic than mutualistic. And to the same extent, I've argued with Henry Lin in a paper on diet and metabolism that foods drive insulin resistance and a pre-diabetic state in a manner that makes sense if we think about, again, that insulin-resistant state being adaptive, so resulting in shifting allocation of resources to the immune system at the expense of, say, muscle activity, but that this adaptation is beneficial because it allows the host to cope with otherwise negative effects in the microbiome, more 
say, more on the parasitism end of the spectrum. So that's, you know, trying to summarize a whole paper in one sentence. I'll uh, leave more detail on the blog. And then finally, in the paper that I've already mentioned, the one that I wrote with my coworkers, Helen Washlewski and Athena Actippus, where we introduced the idea of conflict food, that certain foods can exacerbate conflicts between host and microbiome. And that some of those interactions may, in fact, include conflict that is manipulative. Microbes trying to manipulate the behavior of the host. So we've laid out the case for these conf conflict sorts of interactions that may not be as attractive to some listeners or readers as compared to the examples of cooperation, but they're equally important. And I think that otherwise paradoxical phenomena that occur between host and microbiomes cannot occur, cannot be understood without looking at this potential for conflict. So that's what motivates me. That's what I'm interested in. The, this holobiont and genome idea certainly isn't going away. And to the extent that it's dominated by mutualism versus competition and parasitism, uh, the jury's out. But this is a very interesting area. And I just wanted to talk about this recent paper because it has gotten a little bit of press and put my own two cents on it. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.